We don't want to get rid of the black market. We love the black market. They're our friends. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. What a wonderful talk with a powerhouse woman. Today, we cross the seas to hear from Myrtle Clark in South Africa. She is half of the infamous Dhaka couple, whose arrest for cannabis is being fought all the way up to the highest court in their land. Myrtle doesn't talk as much about the arrest in today's episode, but I'll put a link in the notes to their TEDx talk describing the heavy-handed police action against a quiet middle-aged couple. I definitely encourage you to watch them on stage together telling their story because they make a great team. And then, because of this arrest, they went on to become social justice crusaders together. Today, we talk with Myrtle. She shares on the history of Dacha, which is a local term for cannabis, the state of their lawsuit, and the importance of everyone fighting to end the racial and social injustices of the war on drugs. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I am here with Myrtle Clark, who is coming to us from a farm outside Johannesburg, South Africa. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lex. Great to be on the show. And now before we, we get to what really brought you into the limelight, can you tell me about your story there in South Africa and, and how you came to cannabis? Um, well, you know, cannabis has been used for close on to probably 700 years in South Africa. Since it came down the eastern seaboard of Africa with the Arab traders. So there's um, some say we're the third largest producer and user of cannabis uh, uh, South Africa or Southern Africa. So it's a long-standing use. Um, uh, myself, I've always I'm quite a creative person. I have a BA fine arts degree, and I used to teach high school art. And I've always used it as a um, as a tool for creativity and for enhancing my life. So since I was about 20 years old, so that's how I came to cannabis in the South African context. It's it's a very um, I wouldn't say normal, but I would say it's very widespread. Thing. Um, there is obviously the stigma like anywhere in the world, but you know, we've got very widespread traditional use here as well. So, so it really is a, it's quite a cannabis centric country, South Africa. And so, did you see a lot of people from all walks of life using cannabis as you grew up? Um, no, I grew up in a very conservative religious family. Um, so, where I saw cannabis being used was on my grandfather's farm. Um, my grandmother used to use it uh, to make medicine for the farm workers. And um, and I know that, that my grandfather always used to complain, oh, I've just pulled out a whole lot of bushes of dacha, that's what we call it here. Um, you know, so, so it was, I suppose in those days it used to, we saw it as it was something that black people did or Indian people did uh, when I was growing up. But when I left the small town and came to the city, it was very widespread, you know, among students and South Africa. I was at university during the 80s and South Africa was in the throes of the last throes of apartheid. And it was a very violent, um, stressful time. 
And I certainly know that most people that I met after I left school and that used to use cannabis. And now um, it's very widespread from the top, top executives who have their concentrates delivered to their suite in, you know, in their offices, um, right down to buying it in a little matchbox uh, or a little baggie on the street. So it's very widespread. And in the history, was there a relationship uh, between apartheid and cannabis? Was this used as a tool? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, uh, you know, it was, it was used uh, as a tool even during the old colonial days. Um, it was traded for slaves. It was uh, uh, used to, for bartering and, and all of that. Maybe not so negative in those days. But as it got to the end of the 19th century um, and the, the first sort of seeds of reefer madness were sown, it got worse and worse. Because, and then the first group of people that were targeted were the Indian indentured laborers who were brought over from India to work in the, in the cane fields. So that was their sacrament. So the, it was mainly a, a, a Christian bias. They wanted to convert these people, and they said that it made them lazy. And then that, about 30, 40, 50 years later, that same thing happened to the mine workers. But what's, what's really um, interesting is that cannabis has been endemic in the, in the mine workers, mainly amongst the migrant uh, workforce, um, all these years, for hundreds of years. And even now, the, the mine management, don't, they don't pay it any attention because they know that it makes the workers work for longer and makes them stronger. So for, as far as physical labor is concerned, then when we move, if you move sort of to, to the 1970s and apartheid really started to kick in, then, then that's when it really started getting ugly. And of course, then black males were, were targeted and, um, and, and thrown in jail. And it was the great, a big excuse to purge, to purge people from areas that they didn't want them to be or, or, you know, just generally enforcing the apartheid uh, laws. So we actually call it the last apartheid law because it's never been looked at with 24 years into our democracy. And um, our government has it's been the same party in power all along, and they've never just stepped aside and, and re-looked at this law. So that's why we had to force them to, to, to change the law, which is very, very much in, uh, entrenched in apartheid. I heard someone say once that the war on drugs isn't a failure at all. The war on drugs is actually very, very successful in doing what it set out to do and being a tool to be used against those people, whoever that might be. Exactly, exactly. Now, what's interesting under demo uh, democracy now is that, you know, when we read about things that are going on in America, um, about minorities being targeted uh, due to the drug laws, now, in South Africa, that's not necessarily the case. Obviously, more black people get are arrested because there's simply more black people, you know. Um, but but as far as profiling and all of that's concerned, they will profile um, a, a huge range of people, and it's not only not only black people. Generally, they will profile you if you're young and you look like you've got money, because then they can bribe you, and that's you know that whole story. So we have this, it's almost reverse racism, you know, lots of young white males being targeted. If you've got a ponytail and a beard and you maybe look a little bit hippie, 
uh, Rastafarians as well. I mean, it's such stereotyping. So in South Africa, although it's the last apartheid law, it's not only targeting black people. You know, it's everybody. It's more of a sort of a class thing now. Yeah. And so how did your activism come about? What led you to, to this position? As you'll see in our very scary TED talk, <laughs> we, um, in 2010, we were, we used to work in the film and TV industry. And, um, and at two o'clock one morning, the police just stormed our property and were, they were busy trying to bash down the front door. And, um, they said they were act acting on a tip off and they were looking for a drug lab. So, um, and then they found our cannabis, a whole year's stash. So we spent, luckily for us, just a very short time in jail. We, it wasn't even overnight. Um, and, and yeah, and we had these charges against us. So the absolute worst that could have happened would have been seven to ten years in jail. Although now, eight years on, we realize that that would probably never have happened. But that, you know, you've got to look at the worst case scenario. And then what we could have done, uh, which we also investigated was just pay our way out of it. So, cause there's lots of crooked people, you know, anywhere in the world. Um, so we, we, we inquired and it would have been about 40,000 rand each. And, um, that seemed like a hell of a lot of money, but I mean, it's a fraction of what we spent on our campaign. Uh, so it's a bit ironic now, but we realized that if we'd have bribed our way out of it, apart from it going totally against our principles, uh, they would have just been back because then they have a live one. And then we would never, you know, we would to have cannabis in the house would have always induced paranoia. So we had these sort of three choices. Either we take our punishment, we bribe our way out of it, or we fight the law. And then we met a crusty old hippie and he, he had this book called Cannabis, Cannabis Human Rights and the Law, um, which was uh, written in England, I think in the nineties. And he said, this is what you've got to do. You've got to claim your human rights. Um, and so we looked into it and we got some legal advice and we found a lawyer who, who said, but this is what I've been waiting for. My, you know, his grandfather sat on the bench and his grandfather always, always said, they must get rid of these drugs laws. It's not working. So he was prepared to, and for the first, um, sort of three years of our case, he helped us to put the case on hold so that we could then sue the government. So we sued the government for on charges of enacting unlawful laws um, and basically being, being ignorant of their own laws and the, the latest scientific evidence. So we did that, and then um, we outgrew our law firm, and we found um, a very big, prominent law firm here in Johannesburg who um, are just amazing, and they took on our case. And they helped us register our nonprofit company. And then along the way, we just sort of stuck our noses in everywhere. I mean, we met um, an amazing activist, Scott Bernstein, who used to work for OSF. We just happened to know a friend of a friend who'd heard of this guy would be in Joburg. So we made an appointment. And that way, the whole international thing opened up for us. He gave us loads of information. And then we became cannabis activists. It's never planned, but that's just how it worked out. Wow, what a story <laughs> to bring you here! <laughs> and we're actually just middle-aged and quite normal. <laughs> well, quite normal with a stash of a hundred something grams. 
It was it was one point eight seven kilograms. <laughs> wow. Wow. So so but if you think of two heavy smokers, you know, it can last you a year. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's Generous, part of the... and generously and sharing with your friends, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's why they thought you might have been a dealer, and that's part of the reason they, they set the law so high, the punishment so high. Yeah, well there is there is a there is a a sort of a law, it doesn't hold up in court, that says that if you have more than 115 grams, then you're a dealer. But it has been tested before in the high court and, and, and in the constitution, and it, it doesn't pass it, but they still sort of use that benchmark. So our thing is that is it's really none of their business what we do in our home. You know, that's, that, that's the bottom line. Is It's not even if cannabis did, you know, Imagine if it gave us cancer. Even if it did give us cancer, it's our right to put into our own bodies. And then through that, we've been learning a lot about cognitive liberty. And, you know, the contrast between speaking to academics around the world of the cognitive liberty and the experience of the police in our home is why we do what we do. Because it's just like nobody gets it on, you know, on ground level especially in a country that produces so much cannabis. Uh, I mean, there's just cannabis as far as the eye, eye can see in some areas that's just grows wild or it just comes up every year and the people harvest it as a cash crop and it just just is. And so then how did the, the case proceed for you both? Okay, so so we then got, we got what's called the stay in prosecution, which has put our case on hold. And then we, um, then we had to find our formulate our arguments, um, and we got a really uh, amazing advocate who, um, at the time, he had cancer, and he said, if if you can find cannabis oil for me and you can keep me alive, then I'll take on your case. So um, he sailed our ship for two years. We managed to keep him alive, and then eventually he, he, he passed away. So there was that first which delayed the case in, in a bit, but while he was still alive, we formulated a very, very um, um, solid strategy. So that was really good because he, we, we call it the four platforms. And we, so we are attacking this with our evidence of all uses of cannabis. So that would be our responsible adult use, health uses, industrial uses, and traditional cultural and religious uses. So that was actually two years well spent because we also, that was when we started to learn about the international scene and, um, and get our nonprofit off the ground and raise some money. Uh, and then after he passed away, we, we got another advocate who was very much younger and he's, he's actually under 40 and he really just rocketed the whole, the whole process. Um, and and we managed to get it as far as the door of the court, and we got a we got a set down date. Then, after um, sort of six months into into waiting for this for the date, the the judge who was managing our case came back to us and said, "But there's no way that you can argue this in ten days, and you've only booked ten court days. You need at least twenty court days." So then we had another eighteen months postponement. Um, and and then in August last, so it's been now, as we said, it's been nearly eight years. But in August last year, we eventually had our day in court, um, 
which which I'll tell you about. So that's how that's how it progressed. But it was we kind of needed that time to build a big social activism campaign because our first advocate said to us, "You have to have the, a very very strong public behind you, otherwise you'll never be able to do this." And and we've got that now. We've got nearly fifty two thousand people on Facebook, and um, we have big events and. And we've got affiliate companies and um, donating members and all of that, and we we sort of scrape by. So it's in a way it's been good that it's taken this long. And then we also had to, in between that, had to find all of our expert witnesses. And I started out with about 14 names, and in the end we had seven expert witnesses. So it had to, all you know, coordinate things from all around the world and where's who's available and who's not available and you know who's right and um, and all of that. So we, I, I think that we have to get honorary law degrees after all of this because <laughs> we've had to negotiate all this legalese and these thousands and thousands of pages of language that you you know have got to get your head around. And so then, how did it go? So it went sure, um, a bit a bit sweet because. We have okay, so we were suing the state, and then five years ago, there's a, um, a quite a right-wing Christian uh, group called Doctors for Life, uh, and they they call themselves an international association of, of Christian doctors, but they they're um, against abortion and they're against gay marriage, and they you know they're the typical sort of Christian evangelical people. They applied to join the join the state because they said the state didn't have enough health evidence. So they became the eighth defendant. Um, and then our case started, and we'd applied to the court to live stream the proceedings because this is a matter of public interest. The judge then said, okay, he would give his answer on the first day of court. He gave his answer, answer and he said, they, he said, yes, of course, you can live stream it. You're not allowed to edit it. You're not allowed to do highlights, but you can, you can live stream it. Then the state appealed. So that whole live streaming thing, which we stuck by our guns because it's very important for the public to see it, um, and that took the first three days. Now we had 19 days. Then the state applied to have all of our evidence struck out off the roll because they, they just made this outlandish claim that none of our, our evidence is relevant because cannabis is harmful. So, so, anyway, so that took another two days in court. And so it dragged on. Then um, we, uh, and then we, uh, Professor Nutt from Imperial College in London, wow. sure you, um, took the stand. He was our, our first, our first witness was Dr. Donald Abrahams. And so wow. he'd flown over wow. here and he sat in court for four days and we couldn't put him on the stand because there was no time for cross-examination. So I, so he went on a holiday to Cape Town and he went on safari and then he had to fly home without giving evidence. So that broke our hearts, both his and ours, because we'd been talking for five years and he was so excited. But anyway, he'll come back one day. He's just so amazing. Then Professor Nutt took the stand and they filibustered him and they kept him in cross-examination for 42 hours. So that was just incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Um, they were so abusive to him, um, the, the Doctors for Life's advocates, you know, really, really patronizing and belittling his incredible, incredible evidence. So then we managed to just sneak in our history expert, 
So he finished in two days. And then our legal team said, you know what, if we bring uh, Professor Nutt back in for his re-examination, we're not going to be able to have any contact with him until we come back to court. So why don't we just stop here? So 13 days in, we stopped so that they couldn't keep any of our witnesses in cross-examination and prevent us from having, because I don't put it past them, and prevent us from having contact with them until the next court date. So um, that was, uh, it was quite an experience, I must say, quite an experience. So then, I don't know if you know, but there's another case that is running parallel to us in the Western Cape. Um, and then in November, they got as far as the Constitutional Court. Uh, their, their ruling in the High Court was that, was, was that South Africans should have the right to use cannabis in the privacy of their own homes. But that's all. Nothing about health, nothing about industrial, traditional, nothing. So when their case was heard in the Constitutional Court, we intervened. And so our whole legal team was there too, as was the legal teams of the traditional people, our First Nations people. So that was quite amazing in November, you know, going back to court, um, and particularly the Constitutional Court, because it really is, I think, one of the most, the finest institutions of democracy in the world. Um, there's 12 judges and everybody sits above the judges and you look down on them because that's how it should be because the judges are, are serving the people. So all of our evidence came up again in summary. So that was quite good that even though we didn't finish in the high court, that evidence has, has got the attention of the constitutional court already and that's sort of where we're headed. So now we're waiting. We have to wait for the Constitutional Court to give their answer on the Western Cape case. Either we have to go back to Pretoria and finish our evidence, bring Dr. Abrams back, bring Dr. Nutt back, bring all of our local experts back and have finished the trial, or the Constitutional Court will have read everything we've given them and they will be able to broaden the judgment to include all the different aspects of cannabis, trade and you know, all of that sort of thing. So we don't know. We're in kind of in legal limbo now. now. Um, but uh, it's we, we'll just have to wait. Nobody, There's no, no precedent like this that the same case has been argued in two separate courts. And the problem with the Western Cape case is that the people, they represented themselves and they didn't have – while the one is uh, – um, he has studied law, uh, the other guy hasn't, and they represented themselves, so their case wasn't very structured. So that's how they got the best possible outcome with the privacy judgment. But it's not enough. So we don't know. We'll, we'll see. That is quite a case. I just want to say thank you for taking that struggle to, for our rights to the courts. It's, it's been an incredibly interesting journey and I mean I must say it, it, it has been it's been hard but it's been our pleasure to to do this you know to get the opportunity to give something back because you know Julian has been in South Africa for 30 years now but he's from England and he always says that he's doing this to atone for what for what his ancestor did, did to Africa you know so it's it's payback time for colonialism 
you know, my, my ancestors came here in 1820, so I'm very much entrenched as a South African, but I'm still a white and I'm still incredibly privileged. I've been put on, on the right side of life by apartheid and you've got to pay back. And not all, you know, not many white South Africans get a chance to pay back like that. And it's our way of doing it. We were in a, in a, in a situation where we were comfortably or financially, we both had very nice jobs. We were secure. We were older. You know, we'd, we'd got a bit of experience in life. So that's why we didn't really have, have a choice. It's, it was just really the right thing to do. What's it been like uh, to meet other activists as you started uh, your nonprofit, Fields of Green for All? Oh, it's just been so amazing. You know, if it wasn't for the other activists and the other people who've become activists with us over the last eight years, I don't think we could have kept going. You know, the first time we we sort of left, took our campaign abroad was to the High Times Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam. And um, we met Mark and Jody Emery, and um, and that was amazing. And we were so starstruck. <laughs> and we met um, I'm trying to think of his name now from Normal. Um, Alan were part of his, uh No, um, I think now. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah. Um, and and you know we met quite a few kind of celebrities, as they call him here. Um, and then we went to Ungas in New York in 2016 and also um, met Sue Sisley and uh, other people who are doing amazing, amazing work. Um, and then so it's been, so we've had quite a few overseas trips since then and it's it's incredible to meet to meet other people, particularly people who have been doing this for a long time and to just sit and pick their brains. You know, what about this and what about this and how on earth do you raise money? You know, how on earth do you get the big NGOs to support you and that, that type of thing. So that's been very inspiring. The, the last parts I wanted to ask about were a little bit more about the history that you talked about in your TED Talk, that the, the first ban was in 1870 on cannabis in South yes. Africa. Uh, yes, it was. That was the one that was, that was, um, uh, written into law by one British doctor in one of our provinces on the coast called, it used to be called Natal, it's now called KwaZulu Natal. And he, in, in the, the late 19th century, the history of cannabis in, in the, on the eastern seaboard of Africa totally mirrored what happened in Jamaica. Because this, the indentured laborers, they didn't call them slaves, but indentured laborers, were rounded up in India and sent either to the Car Caribbean or to Southern Africa. When they arrived, they arrived with their sacraments, which was the bung, and they came with seeds. And then this British doctor decided that this, these people were heathens and um, they must convert to Christianity and this stuff makes them lazy. And so it was, it was declared that, that no, that no Hindus were allowed to consume or grow cannabis. So that was the first one. Then in, that was 1878. Then in 1908, there was the Native Land Act here. And together with that came the ban of, um, of the use of cannabis by mine workers. And then it escalated from there to 19, and then also 1912, there was the League of Nations, which is a big meeting of all the colonialists, and they were that was after the opium wars, 
and um, they were writing a list of things that should be banned. And South Africa and Egypt made depositions to the League of Nations to add cannabis to that list. So in some way, we were also responsible for, for putting that down in law at the League of Nations all those years ago. Then the 1961 convention was signed and South Africa was a signatory to it. Then it escalated in the 1970s. Um, and then it never stopped. Right up until now, since 1995, sporadically they've been spraying the fields down in the Eastern Cape province with glyphosate from helicopters, like they do with the coca fields in, in South America. Um, and that's the new democratic government who's doing that with both European and American money. Uh, because in order to secure AIDS, they need to, to, you know, amp up the, the drug war. So, um, it's, it hasn't changed with, with the new democracy, but it's as old as colonialism. Yeah. And such an old, an old story with this old plan. It is. And, you know, even very conservative, white Afrikaans people here in South Africa, they'll tell you that their grandmother used it as medicine, you know. Uh, you know, it's not only black people that used it as traditional medicine. It's everybody. Um, it's just this generation. And that's one of the things that we saw recently when we at the United Nations, is that we need to get rid of this, the, the older generation because we're not going to change their minds, you know. The young people really need to just rise up and 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 just go like a bull in a china shop, and just prove them wrong, because it, it's it's enough now. <laughs> that's why our entire legal team are under forty, because it's young people who've been and and maybe people are sort of our, our age, but it's it's young people who are really coming to the forefront and getting angry about this. Us middle-aged and older people have become complacent with the drug war because it doesn't. We, they've older people have stopped taking drugs. They've had their party, you know. Oh, it's illegal. I won't take the risk anymore. I've got children. I'll stop smoking weed. You know? So it happens. The the last question I wanted to ask um, for all of the listeners here in the states, can, since you're known as the Dhaka couple, and I, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. What's the history of the word Dhaka in South Africa? Okay, so our First Nations people are called Khoisan. Um, and those are the people that were here before any black or white people. Um, and they, they, uh, cottoned on to the use of hemp soon after the Arab traders, before the Dutch settlers came. The Arab traders moved down the eastern seaboard and, and the indigenous people came in contact with, with, um, the hemp plant. And they always brewed it into a tea. It was never smoked. Only when the Dutch arrived, the Dutch taught them how to smoke. And when they drank this tea, they, they said that they became Dacha. And it's spelled D-A-C-H-A, which means intoxicated. It doesn't mean cannabis. But then when the apartheid government ca came along, and even so, sort of from 1950 onwards, uh, they wanted to vilify this plant because it was mainly black people using it. So they took this word that everybody used to say, oh, you, it was a bit like saying you're going to be stoned, you're going to be dacha, like this. But they took, took it because of the way it sounds, dacha, it's very guttural. It sounds awful, 
you know, it sounds. <laughs> so then there's the, the, the apartheid people used to use that word a lot because of how it sounds. And even now, people say to us, how can you call yourself that? It's such a dreadful word. You know, but it's so South African and it's got such a great history that we even have a page on our Dacha Kappa website that explains the origin and the meaning of the word Dacha. Um, and then when, after we were arrested and we got our stay of prosecution, there was a court reporter in, in the court and she, she wrote a story that came out with a headline that said, couple fight for Dacha and uh, referred to us as the Dacha couple. And our legal team at the time said, you should call yourself that. It's really catchy. So it was really the media. That's how we ended up calling ourselves the Dacha Oh, well, it works. And I'm glad it does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then when we bumped into um, uh, Russ Belville in, in New York, we just heard somebody shouting from the other end of the canteen, oh, it's the dagger couple. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, you. so it sounds like you were spreading, spreading information all over the world about this plant. Yes, our big job now is we, we're busy writing what we want the regulations to look like. That's, that's our main focus now. Obviously, we'll have to get into legal gear again once we hear from the Constitutional Court. But we determined to put down on paper in as much detail as what, what the South African cannabis community want the law to look like. Because then when it comes time for Parliament to change the law, once they've got the court order, then we've got a document to say, right, now let's argue from this point. What are the most important aspects of the law that you think need to be written in? Um uh, we've, we've got a, a page on our website if anybody wants to go and see. We call it desired outcomes, which is, which is this is what we want the law to look like. Um, I think that the two most important points that we put across is that we will fight tooth and nail to have no licenses. There will be no licenses to produce or consume cannabis in South Africa because licenses lead to corruption. And we've nearly went to civil war last year because of the corruption in our government. And we've just got rid of our president and we've got a new president and things are looking forward. But, you know, everything is, the prices here of everything is just skyrocketing and the value of our currency is, is terrible. So if you introduce this license system, it's just those licenses are going to go to the people who've got the money to pay for them. And then that does nothing for our rural farmers who've been growing cannabis for hundreds of years. So that's where I think South Africa must stand out from the rest of the world because then we can show the way for places like Jamaica, the rest of the Caribbean, Nepal, all of the other traditional producers of this plant can, can see that it will work without licenses. It must rather work with a cooperative system where you become a member of a cooperative and everybody looks after each other, you know, as opposed to this top-down, somebody's going to play God and and... Uh, award this license to this person, but no, not to that person. So that's that's the number one thing. And then the second most important thing is that before any new regulations are are put into place, there has to be complete reparations for all of the criminal records that have been issued and all the jail time that's been served over over the years. Um, and that the, there must be a legitimizing of the black market first. 
because everywhere else in the world, oh, we're going to get rid of the black market. Everywhere, America, Canada, Uruguay, everywhere, it's to get rid of the black market, the UK. Um, whereas we don't want to get rid of the black market. We love the black market. They're our friends. And so we are not criminals. The cannabis industry and the cannabis culture in South Africa, we are not criminals. And so the black market must be brought up from the underground and into the light first. And must priority must be given to the people who have the expertise. We don't need expertise from the rest of the world. If we do, we'll ask for it. But right now in, in South Africa, there are more people here per capita that know enough about cannabis to start a business tomorrow than in the rest of the world. So we must be acknowledged, the people who know about cannabis. And that, I think, is also going to make South Africa quite different. Reparations and no licenses. These. This is a, a, a question I ask a lot, and this is some of the most progressive answers that I've ever gotten. I... Yeah, so we've actually just published what we call um, our discussion document for our desired outcomes. And that's, that's available on the Fields of Green website. And it's a, it's a 40 pager. We printed it out, made nice glossy booklets to take with us to the UN in Vienna last month. And it's open for public comment. And we're going to keep it open probably until the end of the year so that we can then consolidate all the public comments and, and then, and then start making it out into a fully fledged, um, um, uh, piece of policy, you know, a piece of draft policy. So, because I don't think I might, I might stand corrected, but I have not come across anywhere in the world where the activists and the people concerned have actually said what they want the law to look like beforehand. Because from what I can see in Canada, they were wait, they waited for for C45 to be in Parliament and on the table already before they started saying, oh, reparations, oh, what about driving, oh, what about the children? Uh, there was never anything solid that was put forward by the Canadian activists to say, this is what we want, and we've covered everything that you can possibly think of. That is the way to get it done. So, Merle, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on the show and letting us know more about your work and in keeping this fight going and in legalizing cannabis. And just to let everybody know, we'll put a link to all of this in the episode notes so you can see about about their work. Well, I thank you so much, Lex, and thank you thank you to your team and for spreading the word around there. Um, Jules and I have only ever been to New York, but the West Coast and, and other parts of, of America are certainly on our list. As soon as we can get caught behind us, we'll we'll be there. I think we want to hire a camper van or something and we'll go and visit all of the people that we've met over the years. All right, sure. Come to Colorado. Okay, thanks so much. Great, Lex. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. 
The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>